But we are in Colossians chapter 3 tonight. Colossians chapter 3. So I'd invite you to turn there with me. You'll need to have the text in front of you. Tonight we're going to continue our study, the study that we began last week on the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. Perhaps you will remember that last week we focused most of our attention just on verse 3. Uh, and I, I think I have good, good reason for that. We'll build on that quite a bit tonight. And we're going to build on this text and the ideas and we're going to review them. Um, but before we go any further, let's just read these four verses together. Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you have been seated, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Father, I pray that you would give us the help that we need tonight. Would you open our eyes to see what is true and what is good and what is beautiful? Would you please bring clarity and understanding to my words? Your words are perfectly clear, but mine are not. So I need your help, and we need your help as we listen. Lord, I pray that you would work miracles tonight, that we would leave more mature and more pleasing to you than when we walked in. I pray that we would grow in holiness and that we would grow in honor in honoring Jesus Christ. So, Father, let my words fall to the ground and blow away and let your word remain. For that will bear fruit, we, tr- we trust. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to spend some time reviewing what we've covered so far because it's some of the big picture, big, heavy theology, theological ideas that, if you're like me, they can make my, make my head spin. And I think, I think they're really helpful at this turning point in Colossians chapter 3 as we move in to the really, really practical Christian application chapters of the book of Colossians. Perhaps you'll remember last week that Paul is trying to persuade the Colossians that theology matters. Namely, that their union with Christ changes their everyday lives. Does this ring any bells? Because remember, Paul right away references this union there in verse 1 with this conditional statement, right? If you've been raised with Christ then you must live in a certain way. Right away, we see from this text that, number one, our union with Christ is a theological reality that Paul is talking about. He is placing it front and center in his building of a Christian ethic. Our union with Christ. Now, if I asked you to define that, if you asked me to define that, we would all, we'd go very slow and we'd scratch our heads. You might not know what that means at all. It's one of those concepts that for me has been very hard to clear up in my thinking. And so I hope that we can make some progress on that tonight. So Paul is saying that our union with Christ is front and center. That's what we're building off of. But then he also says that it is our union with Christ... And you get that from words like with Christ or in Christ, as you see there in the verse line of Colossians 1-3. 
it must have an impact on our daily living. Now, if you don't understand, if we don't understand what our union with Christ is, and if we don't understand its implications, how in the world is it going to have an impact on our Tuesday afternoons at 1 o'clock when the Keurig has broken? Now, that just made Tuesdays at 1 worse, didn't it, right? It's never happened to me. Hopefully it won't. But let's, let's try to think about this some, because I think that union with Christ is one of the harder theological ideas to get our minds around, but it is central to Paul's theology. Let's see if we can put it, there's so much to say, but let's see if we can do it like this. Last week, we traced out this pattern of spiritual life and spiritual death, which is a result of our union with Christ. These are salvation realities. We, we, let's put it like this. Number one, we are united to Christ by faith when we come to see him as our Savior. Faith is the glue by which Christ's accomplishments are somehow miraculously attached to ours. We're united to him by faith. And then number two, we profess this faith through baptism, which is a a public symbol symbolizing spiritual death. Spiritual death that has just taken place. So, So in the same way that Jesus died on the cross, we too died with him to sin and to our old lives. That's why the scriptures say that we have been crucified, what church? With Christ. What strange language. I think one of the hard things about being a Christian for a long time is that you hear all this Bible talk and you, it's, it's so tempting to just kind of zone out, right? I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live as Christ. What? And we've got to think about the words here, right? So, so think about the words, the prepositions and the articles, they, they matter. That's what we're talking about. So we profess this faith through baptism, which is symbolizing a spiritual death. And in fact, there is a spiritual death that takes place. And then third, when we die to sin, when we die to self, that since we're united to Christ, guess what? We don't stay dead. Because Jesus didn't stay dead, right? So with Christ, we rise. We are able to walk out of a grave and live in what the Bible calls newness of life. We'll call that a resurrection life. I think Romans 6, if you hear that summary, Romans 6 summarizes this so well. I read it last week. Let me read it again. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's Romans 6, 2-4. It's a summary of what we just described. Now, it's impossible, I believe, to overstate the importance of what we are describing here. All of our spiritual life, Every single blessing that you enjoy is because of your union with Christ, if you're a believer. All of our spiritual blessings flow out of the reality that we have, number one, died to sin, and number two, risen with Christ to a new life. All of them. All of the blessings. And Paul is trying to help the Colossians work out these implications. 
He's trying to help them understand their spiritual death and their spiritual resurrection. And he's trying to help them say, okay, so what does this mean for my marriage? And that's really what he's doing. You read Colossians 3, right? So our main idea last week is really, I suppose, our main idea again this week. Because I'm in the same text. That those who have been raised with Christ now live a totally new life. Those who have been raised with Christ now live a totally new life. Paul is trying to help everyone see what a radical change has taken place. And we're talking about a shift in the entire order of the universe. When Jesus rose, he inaugurated a whole new world order. Last week we called it a whole new reality. We don't have time to explore it, but I think it's so interesting. All the things that took place at Jesus' death, right? Do you remember that simple line, oh, and a bunch of people rose from the dead? <laughs> That's awesome, right? Because something massively different had changed. And it will never again be the same. And if we are his people, if we are Jesus' people, if we claim to share in this resurrection life, then we need to understand this resurrection. We've got to understand what it entails. And then we actually have to live according to it, right? We need to understand this new life and then live like it is real. That's what the rest of Colossians is about. Christian, since you are united to Christ in his death and resurrection, well, then you need to talk in a certain way. And you need to think about sex in a certain way. And you need to think about your relational conflicts in a certain way. And you need to treat your wife in a certain way. And you need to engage in other Christians, even those you don't like that much, in a certain way. And you need to use your time in a certain way and work in a certain way and on and on and on because it has implications for every part of life. But as we'll see tonight, before we can get into how this affects your marriage, it's got to get into our minds and it's got to get into our hearts. This must begin with thinking in a certain way. So let me summarize it again. Because I like doing lots of summaries. I think it helps. Those who have died with Christ must actually be dead to their old life. We must, be, we must live as if we are dead to our old lives. And then those who are raised with Christ, guess what? We must actually live according to our new lives. And as we'll soon see, it is in this new resurrection life, everything centers around Jesus. Everything centers around the fact that Jesus is risen and that he is king. And in light of this, we're called to adopt new values, new rules of thinking, new behaviors, new thought processes. All because Jesus has risen from the dead. The other thing we did last week was to think about why this sort of life can be so hard to adopt. And remember, we saw that it is because this life is hidden. We can't see it. It is, this new reality is currently invisible. That's part of what I think is going on there in verse 3. When it says that this particular life is hidden it's hidden away, it is safe, it is secure, but we can't see it all and experience it all and grasp it all fully now, right? We see the we can see and experience the realities of the secular world. We are constantly and easily reminded of the allure of wealth. 
and of beauty and of pleasure and of sin. But we can't see the realities of the new kingdom in the same way. Isn't that frustrating? I mean, we're, we're used to it, I suppose. But we can't see and, and touch the realities that Jesus inaugurated when he rose from the dead. Because they are invisible. But they're real. And they are coming. And they are coming soon and in fullness. And what we're after tonight is to sharpen our eyes of faith and to see that life and see our lives in the light of this very true, very real world order. This new reality that Christ brought in when he came as a man, died for our sin and rose from the dead, guaranteeing us new life and then ascended into heaven. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to add two more implications of what this reality means for us. The first one is this. This new reality means we must adopt a whole new mindset. A whole new mindset. If what Paul says is true, and if you have really been united to Christ in his death, and if you've really been united to Christ in his, in his life, then that's got to change how you think. It's got to affect it. This is why Paul commands us twice within two verses to think in certain ways. Look down at your text, right? This is what he means in verse 1. Seek the things that are above. There's thinking implications there. And also again in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above. Both of these phrases are very similar and they have some slight nuances, but let's just take them one at a time. And so we'll have two parts of this new mindset that we're calling to adopt. The first thing we'll see is this new reality, this new mindset calls for a reorientation of our values. A new orientation of our values. When Paul says, seek the things that are above, verse 1, he's talking about how you choose to orient your life. How you choose to pursue something. Because of the Bible's close connection between the mind and the heart, you can translate it like this as some, I think the, uh, the NIV or the TNIV perhaps, translates it, set your hearts on things that are above, right? It's, it's very close. And what's in view here is what does your heart and what does your mind love? What is it that thrills you the most? What is it that excites you and stirs up your heart the most? What do you spend the bulk of your time thinking about? Are those things that are above? We'll talk about the practicalities here more in a moment. But the question really comes down simply to this. What do you value the most? What is it that drives your life on a day-to-day basis? I think sports could perhaps be a helpful illustration for us here. Paul often turned to sports illustrations. So shall I. So think about how a pro athlete organizes his or her life around sport. You may not care. You probably don't. But today was the first day of the CrossFit Games. You've probably never heard of the CrossFit Games, which isn't surprising, because it's people exercising competitively. Doesn't that sound ridiculous, right? 
It's a bunch of people and their, their sport is to exercise to see who is the fittest man and the fittest woman on earth. And they literally have a week-long competition, uh, which is, it makes up of 20 different events of all different types of athletic exercising sorts of things. And they've literally made exercising a sport. So today they competed in who could like pick up the most weight. Who could squat the most? Who could strict press the most? Who could deadlift the most, right? They've made exercising a sport. Right now, they are on rowing machines for like four hours. They're seeing who can row the fastest for four hours, right? It's crazy. They, I mean, football players, they exercise in order to do what? Play football. Crossfitters exercise to exercise, Anyways, so there's all these, there's all these, there's 40 men and women who have qualified for these big games that are going on, and almost all of them are full-time professional CrossFitters, <laughs> exercisers. And that is, they exercise for a living. Just, you don't like your job, just think about their job, right? I was watching a documentary on this, and, uh, and all of them have had, to, uh, basically all the competitive ones, have, they can't be in school. They can't, uh, they can't have jobs. Most of them can't even make their own food because they're too tired and they don't have time, right? Because all they do is they wake up and they work out and they rest and they eat and they work out and they rest and they eat and they sleep and that's all they do all year, all year round. They will do seven or eight workouts in a day, right? So that's all they do. Now, my point is this. They have organized every single detail of their life around one thing, Winning the CrossFit Games. Their values, right, reflect this. You can't, you wouldn't do that unless you value whatever it is that CrossFitters value. You don't do that unless you really value your sport, right? Their values are based around whether it's winning the CrossFit Games or looking a certain way or being able to lift up a lot of weight, whatever it is. The key to understand is that there is something in their hearts and in their minds that drives them to do that. Something that drives them to make sacrifices for a crown that will fade. And this isn't just true of CrossFitters, because I know you think they're crazy, but it's true of all the crazy stuff you like to do, right? The things that, that drive us. Each of us has values. Each one of us organizes our life around whatever it is that we choose and consider to be important and to be beautiful and to be attractive. We seek what we value. And the pursuits of our lives are dictated by what it is that we value. And Paul is saying, anchor that in Christ. Anchor that in in heaven. Seek what is valuable to Christ. If we understand these spiritual realities we're talking about, we have to understand that it will change what values to us, what our values are. So the question we have to ask is something like this. If I've really been crucified and raised with Christ, how does that change what I love? How does that change my values? If Christ is king, right? Because in heaven he is right now, the text says, seated on a throne in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. And if he's ruling, if that is true, what is important to me here and now? 
That's what Paul's saying. He's saying make sure that the pursuits of your life are in line with the reality that Jesus is king and he's coming back. And everything that is here will fade. And most of what is going on here is evil. If that's true, what is important to me? Now, remember, Paul, Paul doesn't mean that believers should, should seek to possess right now the things that are above. We can't do that, right? Those are coming soon. What he means is that we're to totally orient our lives to the values of heaven. What's important in heaven should be important to you. What's pursued in heaven should be pursued by you. What is sacrificed for should be in line with what is valuable in heaven. We're to totally orient ourselves to those values. And what is the ultimate value of heaven? The glory of the risen Christ. That's it. Everything is interpreted and responded to and acted upon in light of the beauty of Jesus. Heaven is obsessed with the glory of Christ. Seeing it, talking about it, reflecting it, and singing about it. So the question is, what does that mean for us today? As we seek to align our values and consider our, our values in light of this new resurrection reality, perhaps we could get at that by asking a question like this. What is it that will be celebrated in 10,000 years? What about my life? What about the decisions I make today will be celebrated in 10,000 years? The way that I treat my children, mindful of the glory of Christ, submitting to him, that's something that will be celebrated if I respond in view of his glory. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm not saying don't exercise or play games or crochet or take up woodworking or whatever it is. Right? We can pursue those things. But as we do them, whatever it is, we must be mindful. Christ is glorious. Christ rules. I have died to sin and I will live with him. So go exercise. If you want to exercise eight times a day, whatever, right? Go, go make money. Go interact with your wife. Go remodel your house. Go on vacation. But do it in a way that acknowledges that Christ is in heaven. And that all of his reality is the ultimate reality. Not simply what you see. In a few verses ahead, Colossians, or Paul summarizes this. Colossians 3.17 he says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What a perfect summary, Colossians 3.17. This new reality calls for us to reorient our values. But there's another dimension to this, and that has to do more specifically with our thinking. In verse 2, Paul essentially repeats the command of the same command or a similar command in verse 1. In verse 1, he said, seek things that are above. And in verse 2, he says, set your minds. Right? Both are pursuing. Right? Set your minds on things that are above. And they're pretty close. But I think we're seeing Paul narrow his focus even further here in verse 2 as he gets down into the thoughts of our hearts. Seeking has become thinking. Or you could think about it like this. This phrase has been helpful for me. Mind setting. We have a job. We've been commanded to mind set. To set our minds 
in a certain way. And you have to understand that we are talking about the fundamental orientation of our will. Doing and making ourselves think in certain ways. I'm going to talk about this a lot more on Sunday. Uh, but, but thinking in certain ways. It's our inner attitude. And this is where our discipline can really come into play as we patiently work with self-discipline by the Spirit to cultivate new habits of the mind. Now think about how this, how this would work. Let's say the Spirit convicts you of some issue about the values of your heart. You're living as if eternity was not the most important thing. You're forgetting in some way that Jesus is king. You're forgetting, you're, you're forgetting that a pleasure here will fade and sacrificing an eternal pleasure, a lasting pleasure for a short run. Whatever it is, right? Perhaps you find yourself, you catch yourself working only for the approval of man. You're lazy when no one's looking. But when the boss comes by, back to work. Try to make yourself look good. Or maybe it's taking the easy way out of a conversation at home. Maybe it's yelling instead of disciplining. Or shutting down, pulling away from your spouse when you need to engage. Whatever it is, failing to seek things that are above. Failing to act and to live knowing that Jesus is on the throne. If he's on the throne, he calls the shots. And if he calls the shots, what do we do? We obey. So what do you do when that happens? What do you do when you are convicted of that? You discipline your thoughts. That's one thing you do. You discipline your thoughts. This is why it is so important, I think, for us to acknowledge this, that this new reality we're talking about is invisible. All these new spiritual realities are invisible because it helps us to see the need to adopt disciplined thinking. We've talked about this before, right? You know that you can argue with yourself. Nathan, that's not true. Have you ever done that? You've argued with me, <laughs> right? Have you ever argued with yourself? I don't need that. I don't need to buy this. I don't need to watch this. I don't even need to think this about that person. Maybe she meant this, right? Do you ever do that? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. We need to adopt disciplined thinking because I don't know about you, but I don't have to discipline myself to, let's say, I don't have to discipline myself to remember that money is great. Anybody forgotten that recently? Like, oh man, I forgot. I didn't, I didn't right? We don't do that because we've got that down. That is, that is a part of our nature. We've got reminders all around us. But my goodness, I've got to constantly feed my mind with the stream of reminders that Christ is great. How quickly would you orient your life around a pile of money sitting, sitting out in the yard somewhere, right? You'd get a shovel. You'd change your clothes. You, you wouldn't even change it. You'd get out there and you'd start looking for it. <laughs> We've got to reorient our lives around the realities of who Christ is and what he has done. I need, you need constant, daily, hourly reminders of the values of God's kingdom. Because we can't see God's kingdom, and since we remain in the flesh, we must engage our wills to practice Christian, Christ-centered thinking, mind-setting Disciplining our thoughts. We need to saturate our minds with scripture. We need to soak our minds in gospel truths. 
We need to swim in the waters of the Bible. Even Ezekiel. Some of you are reading Ezekiel, right? We need to breathe the air of the biblical worldview. We need to regularly undistract ourselves and let the scriptures tell us about the way things really are. About what Christ is like. About what we are like. About how we should live and think and treat the poor and talk about what pleases God and what displeases God. We need to train our minds. For me personally, this has been one of the most helpful takeaways from this text, that since this new reality is hidden, I have to discipline myself to think about it, to take hold of it by faith. And I would encourage you, and God's will for you is that you would do the same. So this new resurrection reality calls for a totally new mindset. But it also, number two, the second reality, is that it defines your true self. This defines our true selves. This helps us understand who we really are. Let's just cut to it. We seem to be dramatically impaired in our understanding of who we are in Christ. It's difficult. Because remember, remember, the Christian life is a whole new life. Think about the language the Bible uses. New life. Born again, right? Recreation. Conversion is not minor cosmetic surgery. That's often how we think of conversion, especially in the South. It's like this cos- like cosmetic surgery or, a, or an insurance policy or like this life adaptation plan or something. We're talking about death and new life, which are both traumatic events, a total change. We're talking about a birth. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creature. <laughs> at, uh, at school a few weeks ago, we were having this discussion in my seminar And someone brought up a a quip that they had heard from John MacArthur. Dr. John MacArthur was making the comment about how some of his congregants in his church were very worldly. And he said that when you get to heaven, you will be so different, I don't even know if I as your pastor would even recognize you. Because the holy version of you is so different than the current version of you, I don't even think I'll recognize you. And of course, we all agreed we'd probably feel the same about John MacArthur, but that's beside the point, right? Because we, we don't understand how glorious of creatures Christ has made. We have a hard time as mortals recognizing this new creation. I suppose if we could somehow look in a mirror and see ourselves as Christ sees us and what he intends for us to become, we wouldn't even recognize ourselves. I'm not talking about this all, find your inner beauty. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about what Christ has done in creating new people. The new birth. This got me thinking, do you find it strange that after Jesus rose from the dead that many people were unable to recognize him? I don't know if there's a connection here, but perhaps there is. I mean, Mary Magdalene, the disciples, Cleopas, none of them initially recognized him as the risen Lord. And I wonder, or speculate, if that has anything to do with the possibility that the resurrection life is so 
foreign, so totally foreign to the eyes of the world that it is indeed hidden until it's revealed. But just like those disciples, it has been revealed to us. We can take hold of it, but it's been revealed to us mostly in words. We're called to take hold of it by faith. But this is where we struggle, isn't it? We struggle to take hold of this blood-purchased identity that we have in Christ. There's a well-known quote that I think fits here. One man said, The world knows neither Christ nor Christians, but neither do Christians really know themselves. Could it be that the reason the world knows so little of Christ is that we know so little of how he has made us new? This text teaches us of our very identity. It goes beyond telling us to just think about stuff that's in heaven, right? This is not just think about streets of gold, streets of gold, streets of gold. That's not what this is talking about, right? This is so much further beyond what's in heaven and goes beyond what's uh, telling us about what our future lives are going to be like. Look down at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's centered around Christ. Since we are united by faith to Christ, our new resurrection lives are inextricably bound up in Christ. This is so hard to describe, and I'm trying to, I'm doing the best I can, but, but the text says Christ is is our life. Our, he is our very life. Not, it's, not, it's not a metaphor, right? It's not Christ is like our life or we have life, uh, we have something like life in Christ. No, Christ is our life. And since Christ is seated at the right hand of God, There's a very real sense that our lives are in heaven now. I can't go into this too much. I know it makes us scratch our head. But this is how we have such access to God. Because we are are in Christ, the text says, seated with Christ, who is at this very moment seated at the right hand of God. Our true lives are in heaven. Last week, Haley and I had a day. I didn't, I tried to, I was going to try to get in touch with her today and get the details, so I don't have these quite right. But we had a day where we both woke up really early, and it was incredible. Like within five minutes, five things went wrong, (laughs) which is really traumatic for me. Because normally, when I wake up, I am into the bathroom, and I'm in front of my coffee maker so fast. I mean, it's not hard for me to get out of bed. I'm up, but I'm like to the coffee, right? Anybody like that? Show of hands, right? Yeah. And before I got to the bathroom, like five bad things happened. We have a boxer, a dog, and he apparently was ready to go out, and he stepped on my foot barefoot. And we don't really groom him that much. We don't cut his nails. So he has claws. And so it's like I'm waking out of bed straight into my feet, right? And then, of course, I'm standing up, and I've got these aches and pains. I know you're like, yeah, you're 30, whatever. I I really do have some. And... and, uh, 
And there are a couple of things. I think we also, it's like I got to the bathroom and we're like, oh, the, flap, the, flap, the, the flapper's broken. I got to replace the flapper. And me, I was like, oh, yeah, well, the, Haley's car died. So I got to troubleshoot. I think it's the battery. I'm not sure. It's going to cost money. And then Roman wakes up. Right? I have not had my coffee yet. You've got to understand how difficult this is for me. And I just stopped and I was like, why, God, why? Right? Now I know my problems are small to you. But you know what I'm talking about. Because when Roman wakes up, our time with the Lord is interrupted. The whole day, the whole day is off. And Haley and I were both, we were both talking and we were just like, I know this is small, but like, this is not how life is supposed to be. Right? You know? It's not how it's supposed to be. And you know what? It's not. Because our true lives are in heaven. We were made not for a fallen world, but we were made to be with Christ. Life outside the garden is hard and it is frustrating and it is not how it is supposed to be. Our life is in heaven. Our lives, ourselves, our true lives is in many ways is waiting on us in heaven. It's not just because heaven is great and earth is hard, but because Christ is there. Christ, who is the very source of our resurrection, is, is there and that's where we belong. This new identity, this true self, it takes so much faith to take hold of. And has to affect how we think and how we behave. Which is why Paul says again, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above. That's where your life really is. Starting on Sunday morning, we will begin studying uh, verses 5 through 17, where Paul goes on to talk about all these things that we're dead to, and then all these things that we are alive to. And we will quickly realize that for most of us, we have it backwards. Right, we're really good at being, like we're really good at the stuff we're supposed to be dead to and kind of bad at the stuff that we're alive to. And it can be really confusing unless you're one of those people that's in denial about how great you are. If you, if you want to know, just come ask me, I'll tell you, right? And it's because we struggle to take hold of our new identity. This new identity is real, but it remains hidden. One final point to make on this, because we'll get to that later, is that part of how this text reveals our true identity is that it also shows us where our real power to obey comes from. If we're united to Christ, according to verse 4, we read that he is our life, then that's where we have our source, our power source to obey. If Christ has defeated sin, and if Christ is totally too immune to its sway, where do you think we can find power to obey? Where do you think the power to live the Christian life that is described, starting in verse 5, which gets hard immediately, right? Where do you think we can find power to do that? It's in Christ. He is our power source for obedience. If we've been raised with Christ, then that means that we're already sharing in that resurrection power. And if we're, that's a, if we're sharing in that resurrection power, then we've got a power share going on, right? Because of our union with Christ, we have a lifeline to the power that rose him from the dead is the power that we have to obey. And it's all because of our union with Christ. Christ has decisively severed the power of sin in our lives. 
And now he gives us the power we need to live this resurrection life. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, this is who you really are. And if you're married to someone who's in Christ, this is who he or she really is. And he gives us the power to live accordingly. This is our identity. So set your minds on it. Let it redefine your values and your loves and take hold of it by faith and then go and sin no more. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and understand these realities and that they would affect how we live. Help us to not quench your spirit, but to walk and step with him. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.